In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Barbara Sloan is our guest this week on Money Tales. Barbara experienced homelessness at times between the ages of 15 and 19. She thought about money a lot during that period and reflects that one of the amazing things her dad instilled in her was a strong work ethic. Barbara often had two or three jobs going at once. She was always working. And though she never had a plan, she knew that she was able to provide for herself. Barbara ultimately made her way to the service industry, which opened her eyes to all sorts of new money opportunities and considerations. Barbara is author of the book Tipped, the life-changing guide to financial freedom for waitresses, bartenders, strippers, and all other service industry professionals. A homeless teen who danced for dollars and did not graduate from college, Barbara is now a money coach, helping tip workers achieve financial freedom like she did. In addition, she owns and runs a construction company in the heart of Manhattan. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Barbara hits on in this conversation. First, how in her experience, there's not an income problem for most people working in the service industry. It's usually a money management problem. Second, whenever a service industry person goes out after their shift, they're spending their gross earnings, whereas somebody who goes out for the evening after their nine to five job is spending what they have left over after covering the costs of benefits and tax withholding. And third, how Barbara recommends taking the heat out of hard money conversations by saying, quote, I heard this on a podcast or I read this in a newspaper and wondered if, end of quote, then filling your blank to start the discussion. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Barbara Sloan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I am Sandy Brager. Cammie, I am looking forward to this conversation with Barbara Sloan today. And in anticipation of it, I was thinking a lot about tipping. And I'm wondering two things for you. One, have you ever worked for tips? And second, do you have a perspective on tipping others? Oh, gosh, Sandy, how much time do we have? I have not done much in working where there's a tip component. I have done some. And and so you are very appreciative of it. And I do think about tipping a lot. My husband comes from Northern Ireland. It's not a tipping culture. And so he's he's sometimes confused. Like, when do you tip? How much do you tip? Like, he's all for it. He loves it. And he gets why we do it and understands that you get better service. And it's just tying service to, you're rewarding for it. But now 
tip jars seem to be everywhere. And so when do you tip and, and how much? It does befuddle me sometimes. What is that right amount? How about you, Sandy? I, in college, worked at a restaurant and I was a hostess and made an occasional cappuccino. And so the servers would oftentimes share some of their tips with me. So I had the benefit of that reward that one summer, which was really fun. But I think when it comes to tipping other people, I really like the system too. But I sharing your confusion with the electronic payment systems that are constantly asking for tips on everything, many situations that I would never ordinarily think of tipping. And so it causes a lot of pressure. When I'm out with my children, they're always like, tip, tip, tip. <laughs> I'm like, but they're just doing their job. They're just handing me my bag. Right. You didn't sit down. You didn't use a napkin. You just walked out the door. I want to make sure people are fairly compensated for the work that they're doing, but it is confusing of whether their employers are compensating them or not. So it's confusing, but I love tipping people when I get really great service. And and I'm very appreciative of that. Yeah. And it's such a great system that we have to, it ties us almost more closer with the people because it's sort of acknowledging, wow, you really went above and beyond. I really appreciate that. Well, let's move over to our conversation with Barbara Sloan. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Oh, thank you, Cami and Sandy. I'm so excited to be here. Would you provide a introduction and share two to three pivotal moments in your life that really impacted who you are today? Sure. So my name is Barbara Sloan. I run a company called Tipped Finance. If you meet me today, I own and operate a women-owned construction company in the heart of New York City. And I also am a money coach and I specialize in teaching people who work in the service industry how to get better with their money and find financial freedom and financial independence. So I got started working in the service industry probably very similar to Sandy in my younger years. I remember my first job, I was 11 and I was a paper girl and I had a paper route where I would cover a couple of blocks during Michigan winters and (laughs) rains and all of that. But I do remember around the holidays that I would get some singles or even a couple of houses would give me a $5 bill around the holidays and I felt super rich And then I, during high school, I also worked some jobs. People might not remember this, but I worked in A&W, which was like a hot dog and root beer company as a roller skating waitress. And then after that, for me, life got a little harder. And at the age of 19, I ended up moving across the country to California and I needed a job that was easy and that would give me quick access to cash. And that was the service industry. And the other reason I think I fell in love with the service industry was I came out at the age of 15 and the service industry was one of those unique environments that really supports and rewards people for being their authentic selves. And I don't think there's a lot of industries where you truly just get to be yourself and people are excited by your personality and excited by your stories and excited by you entertaining them with all of the uniqueness that is who you are. And so, yeah, I fell in love with it from an early age. And I spent 20 years working in the service industry and also in construction. I like to say dirt in the day and dirty in the evening. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I think one of the other very pivotal moments for me came around in 2013. I moved to New York City with my wife 
And we had like $700 in our pocket and I got two jobs. The first job was I was bartending at a bar called Coyote Ugly. I don't know if people remember this bar, the movie, but (laughs) you know, you sing and dance on the bar, you hit your patrons. It's a very good time. And then I also got a job working on Wall Street doing accounting and finance, and it was an unregulated market. So it was part trading floor, part independent sales organization selling usurious loan products. So that was a real education for me on the markets, on predatory lending. And I was there for about six months until our third trader got shipped off to rehab. And I was like, this is very toxic. I need to go back to construction and bars because this is how toxic that is. And so I got a job at a construction company. I was employee number four. And this is the company that I now own. But when I was hired, I was tasked with setting up the accounting and the HR department. I had no idea what HR did. I had no idea what a PTO policy was. I had no idea what a 401k was. I had no idea what FSA was. I had no idea what this person, this role was and how it supported the health and wellness of an employee. And it was seeing those benefits. And then on the other side of it, we were working with these really high net worth clients on these multi-million dollar renovations. And I was getting to have conversations with really wealthy people about how they viewed their money and their budgets and how they made concessions when it seemed like they had endless resources. And it was in seeing both the systems and the mindset where I realized, oh, this is the reason that me... And my peers, the 5.5 million people who work on tips have been left behind. And that was sort of my aha moment. And then the second aha moment came in 2016. We all know what was happening politically. And I kind of did a media blackout. I was like, I just can't listen to this anymore. I had too much anxiety. I just felt very hopeless. And I just started listening to financial media. Because that was what was soothing. Wow. At the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So I was just listening to hours and hours of financial podcasts, reading personal finance books. And I guess I had never realized that personal finance was this umbrella. You know, my wife did corporate finance. And to realize that this industry was totally different than regular corporate finance was just was news to me. And so discovering this umbrella and realizing that that mindset and those benefits were underneath this umbrella was also just a pivotal moment for me. But I never heard anybody, podcasts, books, interviewing guests over and over again. I never heard anyone who, like me, had a background in the service industry. I heard the same advice, like, don't leave your 401k match on the table. Try to avoid buying that latte but no advice that was for somebody who had worked on a fluctuating income or who didn't come with traditional benefits. And so that's kind of when the idea for my book came about because I figured that would be the best way to kind of package all of this stuff and try to get it out there. So important. And Barbara, wow, what a story. Could we hear a little bit more about your backstory? Would you describe when money started having meaning to you? Yeah, I would say I really noticed money at the age of 12. When I was 12, my mom left our home. There were problems in my parents' marriage. There was substance use issues. My mom, like most women who were born in the 50s, when she met my dad, wasn't able to have access to a credit card, wasn't able to take out a mortgage. She was also disabled. 
And so I think for her, one of the hardest decisions was probably to leave in that situation. But I was left with a primary parent who did have substance use issues. And I was at the age of 12 responsible for balancing the checkbook and paying bills and managing a household. And I remember one time losing a hundred dollars and walking up and down those 10 blocks for four hours, trying to find it and just being devastated and knowing what that meant for our family. I remember purposefully not paying my dad's truck bill because we didn't have enough money. And I was like, well, his car didn't have any impact on me. So I I didn't pay, I didn't pay that, which, you know, I, it had an impact for him, but having to kind of make those decisions at a really young age and also now realizing that that's where my scarcity mindset came from. Barbara, that's intense to be so young and be responsible for the household's finances. How did you learn how to do that? It was just figuring it out, like answering the phone calls of bill collectors and people saying the the utilities were late and that they were threatening to cut them off and opening the mail and seeing that and asking where the checkbook was and realizing that there was that little register that came on top of the checks where you could log everything into it. And it's funny, but looking back on that now, I think that's why I started doing bookkeeping and accounting was I I had that exposure at such a young age. And I was like, oh, this makes sense to me. The ins and the outs of money. I have been doing this for a very long time. And what happened that day when you lost $100? Did you find it? No. No, I had to go home and I had to sit. And honestly, it was fine. But how I had built it up in my head that it wouldn't be. That's amazing in itself. Like that fear, we make things bigger than they are. It's not nice to lose $100, but that we do sometimes make it bigger in our head. Yeah, we figured it out. So Barbara, as you were growing up, you had a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. And you said when you were 19, you moved to California. So presumably you're kind of breaking free of the family at that point. Did you have a money plan when you left home? I ended up moving out when I was 15. The substance use kind of got a little too intense for me to handle at 15. And I moved out. I was homeless for a little bit between the ages of 15 and 19. I thought about money a lot. But one of the amazing things that my dad did instill in me was a really strong work ethic. And so I often had two, three jobs. I worked retail. I did a lot of side jobs, side gigs at the time. So I was always working. I never had a plan, but I just knew that I was able to provide for myself. And I just knew that what my parents showed me was that they worked hard and they always figured it out. You had the strong work ethic. You had a great self-taught knowledge of accounting, but you were experiencing homelessness. How are you juggling that? That just seems like such an intense period of time for a young person to go through. It really was. Then the high school that I was going to found out that I didn't have a permanent address anymore. And so they kicked me out of my high school because I didn't have an address. And so I ended up having to apply to an alternative high school not too far away. And I I jumped around from couches of people. I remember the A&W that I was working at, I created a bedroll on top of the walk-in cooler so that I could stay there. It was an intense time, but I didn't grow up in an area where there was a lot of wealth. And so you saw lots of people struggling. Just how it was. It felt like just something you had to push through. 
Barbara, you were drawn to the service industry. It's where you could be your authentic self. Tell us more about why you were drawn beyond that. And you said that you needed a job, of course, but you needed quick access to cash. What were you thinking at the time and how did you plan for your needs? So when I was 19, my dad had passed away. And what was hard, you know, I have a lot of respect for both my parents and the house that I grew up in was sold. And for some reason, I was unable to let this go at the time. And this was 2003 when they would give a mortgage to a house cat. And I remember writing a letter to the person, I know, right? I remember writing a letter to the person who bought the house I grew up in and saying like, this is the house I grew up in. It was sold without my consent. I want nothing more than to own this home. I'll buy it for double. Oh my goodness, Barbara. Wow. Uh, So (laughs) talk about financial mistakes. So what do you think was driving that? And this is so fascinating. Why the house and why were you so willing to put more money on the line to get it? I thought my parents deserved to see that house preserved or like something, maybe I thought it was legacy or maybe I wanted to restore it to make them proud. So I remember (laughs) I bought this house for twice the price at 19. I took out 10 credit cards. I maxed them out to restore and renovate the house. I put myself in a terrible financial position. And I think part of the reason that the service industry pulled me back in is was because after a year of putting all of my time and my energy and every cent I had into this house, I just, I realized like life was precious. I just lost a parent. I had spent a year working through my grief and I needed something easy. And that service industry getting to be around people who were always having fun, having fun with drinks, having fun with their friends, having, you know, it just felt like what I wanted to be around low stakes, low pressure, quick access to cash and a lot of fun. And that is exactly what I needed at the time. And I loved it. Did you end up selling the house? Yeah. And how did that work out for you? So this was 2005 that I sold it. That was a good time to sell. I made a little bit of money off the house, but not enough to pay off my debts. I was still wildly in debt and avoided creditors for many years. I dealt with those mistakes for a long time. I like to say that I've truly tested the limits of the credit system. I moved around a lot over the next 10 years. Something about moving around and having a fresh start was really appealing to me. I lived in Los Angeles and Las Vegas and Boston and back to Michigan and New York and everywhere that I moved, it was really easy to get into the service industry. But I remember like I would check out a book from the library and forget to return it. And the library would hit my credit report. (laughs) I didn't even know libraries could hit your credit report. I did a number on my financial life. And that was the other reason that I felt like maybe it would be okay if I wrote this book because I had made so, so many mistakes and I'd been able to dig out of them. And I thought that maybe other people would find some inspiration in seeing all of the mistakes that I had made. Was there a tipping point, using that word intentionally, (laughs) was there a tipping point, Barbara, when you said enough is enough? I'm not sure if there was one. There were a lot of small moments. I had always kind of been a good saver and I had always been very, it doesn't sound this way, but I had always been a responsible person, even though I made plenty of mistakes. And so I think I was always looking to learn and do better. And so even though I was making tons of mistakes, I was pretty consistently trying to get myself out of them. 
And so it came slowly. Can you say more about that? So you're working in the service industry. You're presumably earning mostly cash. What were you doing with the cash when you had this mounting debt behind you? I was having the time of my life. <laughs> so I, was, <laughs> I was going out constantly. I was backpacking through Europe. I was saving up for a move to a different state. I was going on lots of trips. The thing I find interesting is that this service industry has the stigma of low income, and that's not the case. There's not an income problem for a lot of people in this industry. It's usually a money management problem. And also, I think a lot of people, when they're in this industry, they assume that this will not be a career path for them because it's modeled as this ambition or moral failure in society, whether it's Hollywood's depiction or generational parents' depiction. But people, you always see the woman down on her luck waitressing in the movie, or she couldn't make it as an actress and so she waitressed, or she did it while she was in college or, or what have you. But people don't see these positions as careers. And so I think for a lot of people, they assume that they won't be there for very long. And with that comes short-term thinking. Short-term thinking, meaning that you don't set yourself up with retirement. You don't set yourself up for long-term savings goals. You aren't thinking about how to keep yourself out of debt. You aren't worrying about your credit score. You aren't thinking about an abundance mindset or that you have to claim your income in order to qualify for traditional financing. And so I think that it's a feature of this industry that you have such great flexibility and access to cash and all of these things. But there are these hazards, which is short-term thinking. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. So tell us, in writing your book, what were some of the key top goals that you were trying to get at besides helping this broad set of service industry? What What's the foundational things that you wanted people to walk away knowing and doing? The first thing I wanted to tackle was job hazards. Every job has hazards. We were talking about like financial services, financial industry. There's a lot of careers that will take a hit on your mental health. There's a lot of careers that will take a hit on your physical health. No one comes out unscathed in any industry. There are always hazards present. But for a lot of industries, you're trained on those hazards. And this was one of those industries where I was like, nobody trains you about how to protect yourself from the general public. No one trains you on how to put good boundaries in place. No one trains you about how to interact on a daily basis with alcohol and maybe other illicit substances. And so that was something I really wanted to tackle in the book. And also just because I think that's so different than what most people's places of employment look like. That was definitely the first thing I wanted to tackle was environment. How do you square that with the money aspects? Because you said people in the service industry make a lot of money. I mean, they have to because there's five and a half million people you said are working in it constantly. I know some positions where people stay for a whole lifetime to your point. Yeah. Well, my wife's in finance. And so after a day of staring at Excel spreadsheets, she has no energy. Her brain is spent. It is just like, oh, I just want to go and watch some mindless TV or just like turn off. When you are in the service industry, a lot of times you leave your shift more energized than when you started. So you are coming off of this shift after like a big rush. 
and you're ready to go out. You're ready to go have a drink. And unfortunately, that means that you're spending a portion of what you're making. I'd like to make this distinction. Whenever a service industry person goes out and goes to a bar after their shift, they're spending what they have. Whereas somebody who's leaving their nine to five shift and they're going to that same bar, they're spending what they have left over. Their safety nets are already in place. Their 401k is already in place. Their paid time off is already in place. Paid time off is a huge benefit that people don't realize. 20 days, the average American gets 20 days. That's a working month of paid time off. You talk about this industry as, you know, maybe people who are not serious in their careers because they'll just walk out on a ship. It's from burnout. It's because they don't have any paid time off. It's because also they're not leaving anything on the table. If you didn't have vacation days, how many times would you be considering walking out of your job? A lot more. Tell us about your wife, Barbara. You're both financially oriented, extremely so. I'm curious, how do money conversations go in your household? Yeah, she's not interested in personal finance at all. I think when you do the spreadsheets all day long, she's (laughs) just, I'm the one who manages our money. I think for her, what was so interesting is she got her start in her career in 2008 at a defense contractor. And so when she first started in her money world, She saw 50-year-old, 60-year-old men crying that they were going to have to work another decade, crying that they lost half their net worth. And she became very avoidant, avoidant of the stock market, avoidant of savings, just because who knew what was going to happen? And so for us, we didn't get money moving in the right direction until we started sharing money, which is definitely not perfect solution for every couple. Every couple's unique. But for us, what I found is that we enabled each other a lot. (laughs) If I had a good shift and I had earned a lot of money at the bar, I'd be like, oh, drinks are on me. Let's go out. Or vice versa. If I was like, oh, I'm short this week, she'd be like, oh, I got us. And it wasn't until we started sharing money that we started developing shared money goals and that it started moving in the right direction. And I thought that was very interesting. That is interesting because it's no longer just your skin. It's shared skin. Were you talking about your values and what money meant to you? Yeah. So when I, that year of media blackout, 2016, and I love this as a, I often give this as homework for my coaching clients. I would always frame every conversation point as I heard this thing in a podcast and such a great conversation starter. Exactly. It takes the heat out of it, right? I think for most people, we all have trauma from early in our life and our trauma is played out in our financial lives, whether it's avoidance, you know, like you not opening your mail, you not opening your apps to see what's in your account, or it can look like overindulgence. It can look like, oh, I, I work really hard. I deserve this. It can look like hoarding. It can, I mean, money traumas can show up in so many ways. And so I think for a lot of people, when you frame those topics or those questions as, I heard this thing on a podcast, what do you think about it? It takes all the heat out of it. Was it 2016 that got you guys to the point where you were ready to share and stop enabling each other? Before that, we would go Dutch. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is that right? Like Venmoing each other back and forth? We started dating in 2011. So five years, we went both putting two credit cards down at dinner, two credit I mean- So like literally everything was down the middle. Everything was split because we were both like, we are fierce and strong, independent women. And (laughs) 
<laughs> we will manage our own money. And so I think that that's a great thing if that's what works for you. But for us, we didn't really start making traction until we aligned our goals. And so once you did that, was it prompted by your year of financial education through everything you're listening to? Because there's not enough that we're doing in this country to educate people on personal finance, not only the technical aspects, but how to engage in the conversation. So I just, I think it's quite wonderful that you really dove into the topics and you were bringing what you were learning to your relationship. Yeah. She had also gotten a job at this tech startup that was bought out by an insurance company. And this insurance company, a hundred year old insurance company gave us a free financial advisor. And she was like, Oh, do you want to meet with them? And I was like, yeah, I never thought I'd get the chance to meet with a financial advisor. Definitely. So we sat down with him and it was the most infuriating hour of my life. And he started talking about a bunch of things but he started talking about an emergency fund and he was like, oh, you know, your emergency fund should be this. And I was like, I was aghast. I was like, I'm sorry, I live in New York City. Do you know how much six months of my expenses are? You want that sitting in an account, not for a vacation, not for a home, for just sitting there doing nothing. And I set out on a mission after that call and I was like, I'm going to prove Jeff wrong. And no, Jeff was 100% right. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, all right, I guess I need this emergency fund. And then, you know, we talked about it and that was our first shared goal. And I mean, we got so serious about it. We stopped going out to eat and it took us 18 months to save it, but it was a lot less time than I initially thought it was going to take us. Barbara, what do you think that emergency fund does for you too? Man, that emergency fund is now my favorite thing ever. It lets me sleep at night. It's my rock. And I think that it, is so powerful for people in the service industry as well, because that industry has a lot of power imbalance and the general public can often chip away at your confidence or make you feel like you have to say yes to requests that maybe you don't want to, or even bad employers that are asking you to do things that you shouldn't have to do. When you have money in the bank, when you have six months of savings, it enables you to take that power back and to say no or to walk away. So for all industries, I think it's essential, but especially for the service industry. It's the first thing I tell people to start on. Barbara, tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? So I do a little bit of one-on-one coaching for people in the service industry. And my next scheduled money conversation is with a lovely waitress who lives in California. And yeah, she already has an emergency fund. I'm so proud of her. And so, yeah, we're talking about investing. What a great conversation. And since Sandy and I are in California, we know how expensive it is. So I'm glad you're having that conversation. Barbara, would you tell our listeners, how can they reach you? What's the best way to contact you? You can find me mostly on Instagram at Tipped Finance. I'm also on Twitter. You can also reach me at tippedfinance.com where I do one-on-one coaching. I will come to your bar, your restaurant, your club, and I'll give a money talk. You can also pick up my book, Tipped, on Amazon. Barbara, really great work. Keep it up. Your energy, your passion, your focus, your dedication to this important topic is felt. And thank you for joining us on Money Tales. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. 
Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcast at See you next time. Thank you.